others fail. Uh, she writes this way. She says, uh, when a Hollywood couple announced their divorce last year, I put work aside immediately and started to lap up news and videos that promised any scoop on the unfolding events. It's not as if I cared about the two actors. It just seemed like fun. I continued to consume filthy gossip about the ex-couple and possible reasons for their split throughout the week, and I hated myself for wasting so much time, but reading about the celeb's dirty linen is like munching on a bag of potato chips. It's comfort food. There's a mischievous pleasure to be derived from watching the enviable and rich fall from grace. There's even a name for it, schadenfreude. It's a German word that means secretly enjoying others, seeing other people go through rough times. Schadenfreude. That's not a word we use every day. In fact, I had to practice it this week multiple times in order to be able to say it with that, in that way. Do you want to practice it with me this morning? Do you want to say it with me? Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude, say it. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, okay. Schadenfreude is the exact opposite of compassion. In fact, it's probably one of the worst attributes that we can have as people. It's actually a corollary of envy because we envy those people who are doing well, and you're very likely to be actually encouraged by their losses. How twisted that is. We actually shouldn't just say, well, you know, that's just, this is human nature. We shouldn't allow ourselves to do that. Actually, we, uh, we should not participate in this vicious attitude because really the next steps beyond it are, are actually horrific. They become very destructive potentially for our neighbors and our, even our brethren. You know, there is a fine line between delighting in God's just judgments and seeing justice be had and then crossing that line and, and delighting in other people's misfortunes. There is a fine line there. And as we walk through this text, I'm going to help you see in the end that there is an antidote for schadenfreude, and that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a gospel anecdote to this profound issue where we potentially would have glee over our competition in their losses. Uh, last Sunday, we observed Obadiah denounced the pride of Edom. It caused them to be deceived. It caused them to be dumb. It caused them to be, in the end, destroyed. And the root of their pride was an ungodliness. They, they didn't have God immediately in their thoughts, and they thought that they were God and that they were masters of their own world. And their lack of godliness fueled their pride, and it led to this, this problem of delighting in the tragedies of their neighbors. Now, Obadiah denounced pride, which led to this, and what we're seeing in this text is kind of like a I'm going to, this sermon is going to take a kind of a, a V-shaped pattern. We're going to kind of follow a descent. 
down and see the progression of this thought process is where it will take you if you let it go to its full extent. But then when we get to the bottom, we're going to turn and we're going to start to move towards how, how, do, how does the gospel help us to, to have new attitudes towards those around us. And so this morning, let's follow first the steps from schadenfreude to partaking in atrocity. Obadiah says that Edom has abused his brother Jacob, doing incredible violence to them. Now, violence is, according to Obadiah in verse, uh, verse 10, of such, such depth that it is, that is uh, going to cut them off forever because of what they have done to their brother Jacob. And we have to ask ourselves, what was it that they did that was so damning? Now, Edom had an antipathy. They had a disdain for their brother, historic brother. And this disdain for Israel caused them to dehumanize their neighbor. And then allowed them to become accessories to their death. In several places in this text, if you look at verse 10, Obadiah pairs two words that don't naturally go together. The word violence and the word brother. Those two shouldn't go together. He says in verse 10, because of the violence that you have done to your brother. Now, it's okay for brothers to have tussles every once in a while. But it is unnatural for brothers to engage in violence that leads to atrocity. Now, Obadiah singles out these acts, and, and we might look at them and say, well, they didn't actively engage in violence. But these are passive-aggressive moves that we might be attempted to excuse and even overlook in our own lives. And we have to give recognition to the truth that these may actually be acts of violence against those who are our neighbors. So let's look at them. Verse 11, we see the first of these, the steps downwards. We're going to see in verse 11, first, there's a silence or a non-involvement in the face of horror. Verse 11 says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that the strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Edom stood aloof when their neighbor was being overrun. And it was a tragic day. In that day, ancient Babylon was the ascendant world power. Egypt, Ethiopia, Assyria, they sparred for dominance in the Middle East, and Babylon was quickly becoming the, the competition to Egypt and to Assyria, and this competition quickly led to warfare. Now, there's nothing new, I think, that we should understand. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, the only thing that is, I would say, new is in terms of scale. 
the size of the bomb might change, the size of espionage may change, or strategies may, may increase in complexity. Last Sunday, I, I had talked about how that power is like a baton. It, it's something that can be passed from one powerful player to another, and, and, and the underpower rises up to take that baton and, and sit on top of the, the pile, so to speak. Those that are on the, top, on the top always have that issue of having to defend their position. Now, there's ancient drama taking place in this text that's behind the scenes, and it's important for us to see it. It, it helps define the issues. It helps us to apply them to the present. And so let's consider some of the ancient drama for a moment. Decades before the fall of Jerusalem, King Josiah attempted to earn favor with this up-and-coming Babylonian emperor. In fact, he had an opportunity to intervene in world affairs. Egypt, feeling threatened by Babylon, uh, assembled a chariot army and came through Israel on the coastal plain and came up over the mountain pass of Megiddo and was headed on its way to Assyria, uh, to Nineveh, to meet Babylon with Assyria for battle. Egypt and Assyria desired to, to mitigate and kind of try to break the power of Babylon before it could rise up and overtake the known world. And Josiah decided, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to curry favor with the Babylonians. I'm going to try to take my armies up to Megiddo, and I'm going to prevent Egypt from going through the territory of Israel on their way to fight with Babylon. Well, while he went there, he blockaded the, the route through, but it wasn't going to be good for Josiah. Josiah was slaughtered in his own chariot, and they took him back to Jerusalem, and they buried him with his fathers. So Egypt and Assyria went up, and yet they were no match. They were no match for the rising uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and at the Battle of Carchemish, they were dealt a crushing blow. All that was left for Nebuchadnezzar was to basically ride through the territories and set up puppet kings, because there was no real resistance. He set up puppet kings. He even took some captors. He took Daniel and his three friends and brought them back to, to Babylon. That could have been the way it would have gone, but there were several puppet kings in Israel that said, I don't really want to be a puppet, puppet king. Zedekiah was one of those, and he cut off his tributes to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to let that happen. Nebuchadnezzar came, and he laid siege to Jerusalem, and for 18 months, there was no one going in and no one going out, and he starved the city, and he started to break down the walls. And as the walls of Jerusalem began to fall, Zechariah, the king, attempted to flee the city. He sent his armies out another direction, and he went towards the Jordan River. He thought to decoy and give himself a pass to get away. It wasn't going to work. Nebuchadnezzar sent troops down to the Jordan River, rounded him up, and slaughtered his sons before his eyes, and then poked his eyes out and led him away and changed the battle. In. There were many others who were fleeing Jerusalem at that time, and the Edomites came from the south 
and they blocked the routes of escape. And they set up barricades and they allowed people to, they forced people to return to the Babylonians who were going to slaughter them and also to enslave them. There was opportunity. There was opportunity. Absolutely horrific. And here, Obadiah says, look, <laughs> you stood by in silence while this was all happening. Why did you stand in silence? And I think we could ask ourselves even this day, how does this happen? Have you not seen the videos that go floating around of someone being assaulted in the middle of the street and people just walking by? How is it that this kind of thing occurs within people? We just put our head down and walk? Edom's silence and non-involvement was actually complicity. It's exactly what he said in verse 11. You were like one of them. But what caused this to occur was disdain. They had animosity in their hearts towards their neighbor. And this is true that this can occur in our own lives. We can create a disdain in our hearts for those and we disassociate ourselves, and we stop attributing worth to them, and what we do is we create a category in our minds where they're, they're just other, and we other them. And we don't see them as someone worth helping. Now, Christians, we can other people too. We can have a philosophical political or even a spiritual disagreement with people and we can cut them off in our minds. We stop praying for them. We start having negative thoughts towards them. Yet people are people to quote Dr. Seuss no matter how small. People are people, no matter how wicked. People are people, no matter how warped, no matter how deceived, no matter how they have been mass formed. We might think that we have all knowledge and see through everything. Don't allow contempt for your neighbor to grow. Don't allow it to grow in your heart and mind. Instead, pray. Pray for those who have despitefully used you. Because the steps can grow fast. Things can turn from silence and non-involvement towards greed and opportunism. Verse 13 says... I skipped over verse 12 because in this text, you, you, he's kind of talking about the gloating attitude that I've already referenced. But in verse 13, the progression here is towards, you know, he's saying, don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Uh, don't gloat over his disaster. Do not loot his wealth. And we see in this, apparently, after the dust had settled, we find Edom inside the gates like vultures picking up leftover 
gold that was left behind or the smoke hasn't even really settled yet and they're in there looking for what's good left over. Opportunism is the conscious policy and practice of taking advantage of others when they're vulnerable. You know, this happened in Germany in World War II. Many Germans moved from being silent about the Jewish problem and seeing their neighbors being taken away, and they moved very quickly to actively looting their stores, looting their homes, looting their estates. But this can happen in very respectable ways, though. We, we might, like, frown on that and say, well, pff, we wouldn't do that. Well, let's say, for example, you're buying groceries and you pay cash. The cashier gives you change, and when you get back to your car, you're starting to put your the, the money that you've stuffed in your pocket back into your wallet, and you notice that there's a bunch of tens that are stuck together. And you justify in your mind something. And you say, well, they're, they're actually getting their fair share. You know, prices are rising. I'm sure they're turning a profit. And then you drive away. That was opportunistic. That's having a bad attitude towards your neighbor. Maybe you're selling insurance and you develop trust with a person and you provide a policy to people that they actually need and so they, they begin to demonstrate trust and then, and then you slip in some riders that actually that they don't need. And you justify in your mind, oh, well, they're doing okay. They've made money already in life. Here's one that's probably more pervasive. It's called quiet quitting. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's actually the idea of doing the required minimum in one's job and not putting in the attitude or the enthusiasm or the effort that you once did. You might say in your mind, well, my boss is desperate, unemployment's low, they're not going to be able to find anyone anyway. According to Gallup in 2022, survey at least half of workers in the United States, 50% of the workforce are considered quiet quitters. We, when we begin to have contempt for our neighbor, it is a short step to taking advantage of our neighbor. And once you've gone that far, it's actually easy to betray others. There is, in verse 14, this indication of a blockade, which I've alluded to already, or betrayal of, instead of receiving those who are hurting and needing help, there's a turning of them away so that they are destroyed. So actually, it's a grim scene, very grim scene. Those who are fleeing south are met by the Edomites blocking the roads. They're turned back and they're slaughtered. Now, the Judeans who experienced this betrayal by their neighbors never forgot The blockade was the climax 
of treachery, of vindictiveness. And it's what happened in Germany to many neighbors. But some of us have felt this here in America. Maybe in the past couple of years. Maybe it was governmental disinformation that spread it. I know no one was put on a train over the last couple of years, but we descended into thinking of one another as dirty and unclean based on medical choices that people made. Some of us were shunned by family for their decisions, and now we might be tempted to shun family By no means should we disassociate and other people. See, Edom's guilt was growing deeper and deeper. And the dominoes started with, uh, with schadenfreude. They had this delight that rose in their hearts. Israel is getting it. And it led to silence, and it led to opportunism, and finally it led to outright betrayal. Now, as I said, I started this message, and I warned you we were going to be going to a V, right? We're coming down. Now this is where we turn. This is where there is a gospel anecdote for the indulgence of schadenfreude. And I want to show three truths. One is in the next verse, verse 15, which we didn't read, but I want to also move towards the New Testament, and I want you to see how that there is hope for all of us who have, at times, nurtured these attitudes in our hearts. And three truths that can assist us when we feel this rising within our souls now, these have the flavor of divine justice. However, they ought to humble all of us. They ought to crush our pride and give us the hope that one day all injustices will be put away. Now, in verse 15, I want us to see, Obadiah says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you, Edom, have done, it shall be done to you. And in verse 20 and 21, which we will also get to in time, you'll see that the exiles of Israel are foretold to return to their historic, rightful place in Jerusalem. Saviors will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. Some of these saviors had been foretold, and we know them by biblical names of Ezra and Nehemiah, who brought the people home. But there is a greater, even greater restoration that is promised. And in this verse, these verses, we see that God is going to bring about a just retribution and restoration. I will develop this point more in future weeks, but it's important for us to take these words seriously in verse, verse 15, which says, As you have done, it shall be done to you. 
This is the epicenter of God's moral government. God created a world with laws, and we live within them. We can't break them. We can't change them. Our society will try to call that which is right wrong, and that which is wrong, they will try to call it right. But we can't get outside of the system that God has designed his moral, the rightness and wrongness. And we instinctively long in our hearts for retribution because when we have been hurt, we hunger for the tables to be fixed, to be turned, and to be properly set. There's nothing wrong with that desire. And when loss is incurred at the hands of unjust people, and it's, it's like a law of gravity. We don't question the law of gravity. What must go, I mean, what has gone up has got to come down, and, and, and in the same way, the one who breaks is going to be broken. As I said, this desire is not wrong in our hearts. It's actually a testament to the reality of God's moral system that we live within. Now, we live with human government that is imperfect, but God's moral government is perfect. God is thankfully slow to anger, and he is gracious, and he allows us to repent and to turn and seek, rest seek forgiveness. But the day of the Lord is coming, and that's something that we can give thanks for. Now, the day of the Lord will bring restitution, but also the day of the Lord is going to bring restoration. There's going to be a restoration of everything that has been broken. Both of these are very hopeful truths for all of us. And so I want to move now towards the New Testament, and I want us to see how God has provided retribution and restoration in Christ for those who are humble and see him and turn to him. This is helpful for us to be able to deal with the feeling that we may have of delighting in other people's downfalls. And so let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, please. I don't always turn to other passages in a sermon, but if you need to find it, it's on page 1109 in the Red Pew Bible. And I want us to see 2 Corinthians 5.21, in which Christ took the retribution, and he also is going to give us the restoration we so desire. Verse 21, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is a very plain statement that the sins of the whole world were placed upon Christ. He was made to be sin, although he had never sinned. He did this voluntarily. He was not conscripted. He was not enslaved. He was not forced. He voluntarily was in agreement to be made sin. And so he received upon himself the retribution that we all deserve in order to provide restoration for the humble. 
And that is exactly how great our God is. Our God is so great. He so freely forgives those who humble themselves and see that the retribution they deserve was placed upon his son. We get life, we get joy, we get peace in exchange for the bitterness, the envy, the opportunism, the schadenfreude. All of that is placed upon him. And instead, we can have the freedom of peace and joy and contentment. Now, some people think that the punishment for sin only pertains to this lifetime. A lot of people in this world will acknowledge that when people do wrong, they're going to suffer for it. And they think, though, wrongly, that this only pertains to this lifetime. The gospel of positive thinking agrees with that premise. That you can make your best life now by changing your attitude and the problem with that is is that unless you make reconciliation with God who owns eternity that retribution will extend out into eternity you long for the restoration you long for the change you need to humble yourself and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for all of your sins. The gospel of positive thinking will destroy you. It may give you some enlightened load in this time, but it will destroy you for all of eternity. Now, what truly helps us in this lifetime is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us to overcome this schadenfreude of, of just delighting in others' hardships. And so we're here in 2 Corinthians 5, just back up a few verses to verse, verse 17, in which we, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Is it possible to look at the cross and experience schadenfreude? Is it possible to look at the cross and have delight rise up in your heart? Find a sadistic pleasure in the sufferings of Jesus? Are you satisfied that he died? Good riddance. That's probably hard to hear. And it shouldn't be. 
because the events that occurred upon the cross were so horrific they can hardly even be described. Some have attempted to do so, and I, and I, I frequently go back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and I, and, I, and I see the parallels in which Aslan, the lion, gives his life as a substitute for Edmund, who had betrayed the whole family. The white witch made claim to Edmund's life, and Aslan offered his own life as a substitution in exchange for Edmund. And the white witch accepted. Soon after, Aslan goes towards the enchanted table and to offer himself in the middle of the night. Yet that's not enough. It's not enough. The white witch and all her demonic followers bind him, they gag him, they beat him, and they shear his mane. And on the stone table, he's executed by the, the white witch with a stone knife. It's a terrible sight, and, 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 the, and the, the movie edition just really heightens it as there's drums beating, and there's cheering, and there's dancing, and there's gloating over top of this lion that's going to be slaughtered. And you know the character of Aslan. He's not worthy of this wickedness. And in your gut, you, you're really hit hard as you're watching this unfold. And there's those who are taking great pleasure in the suffering of an innocent being. And you might think to yourself, I would never do that. I wouldn't do that. Oh, but do you? If you, like Pharaoh, will not let your neighbor go, you will take great pleasure in their suffering. You will say in your heart, serves them right. You'll stand in silence. You'll be cruelly opportunistic, and maybe even you'll even betray them. There may be a phone number that you can call someday. See, what Edom did to Israel was absolutely reprehensible. It led to their death. They stood in silence. They barricaded the highways. Now, what they should have done was to provide help provide healing, to provide protection. Now, Jesus told a parable about this, didn't he? We call it the Good Samaritan. There was a priest, there was a Levite. They passed along the outside. They failed to help the bandit's victim that was lying in the ditch. Who was it that stopped to help? It was the Samaritan. And that's remarkably ironic for two reasons. First, a Jew would have walked a wide mile around Samaria to avoid going through it. Because those were the inbreeds, those were the, those were the defiled people. If you were a Samaritan who had been labeled with this stigma... Do you think that you would help a Jew that was lying in the ditch? 
No, you probably wouldn't. You probably, because you were labeled as such, would have also walked a wide mile. And that's the point of Jesus' parable. On the one hand, all of us are lying in the ditch. And when someone comes to help us, we can't be picky about who comes to help us. You know, you'd be grateful if Nancy Pelosi came to pick you out of the ditch. You would be very grateful if Chuck Schumer did. Everything you ever thought about that person would probably start to unravel. You might not agree with their politics, but you still would probably look at them a lot different. And the distance that you once thought that keeps you away from them will go away. The Samaritan, the sworn enemy, became a neighbor. Do you think that Jewish man would ever forget his benefactor? I don't think so. You see, sin has put us all in the ditch. We all need rescued. And when you're desperate, and you're desperate for a Savior, you won't care if it's Jesus of Nazareth. You won't care. Your need will break you, and the Holy Spirit will then heal you. The Holy Spirit will come and put new attitudes in your heart so that you will begin to look at neighbors differently. You will see yourself as the one in the ditch that was redeemed and helped. Let me share with you the last part of that stone table parable of Aslan and paints a beautiful picture, actually, of the empty tomb. As Aslan dies and the witch leaves to prepare for battle, she doesn't know that there is enchantment on the table and the words contain deep magic and the, what is written on the side of the table is this, if a willing victim that has committed no treachery is killed in the traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself would turn backwards. The table splits at dawn, the lion stands and roars. And then he races to join in battle against the white witch. But even death itself would turn backwards. It's a beautiful illustration, beautiful illustration of the effect that the Son of God's willingness to take retribution upon himself for us on the cross communicates. And we have to go back to that question. How is it that anyone could take pleasure, anyone who could take pleasure in his suffering and think to themselves, good riddance. Yeah, you had it coming. You deserved it. No. When we look at the cross, there is a sweet sorrow that is there because we see that that ought to have been our place. And the Holy Spirit gives us proper attitudes to forgive others as we have been forgiven.
the Spirit teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We who were in a ditch. To indulge in schadenfreude is demonic. It's demonic. We cannot indulge in that. Because if the old has passed away, the table is broken, and the tomb is opened up, and the new has come. And we do this by loving our neighbor as ourselves, those who belong in the ditch, as well as us. We all belong in the gutter for our sin. We are all worthy of retribution. It is by grace that we are saved. And so the antidote for Schadenfreude this morning is that we love our neighbors as ourselves, and might I add, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in your word this morning.